We're going to start reading in Mark 21, 121, <laughs> chapter 1, verse 21. It says, Then they came into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man there in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Yeah, isn't it funny? You actually say amen to a demon. They got this one right. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he came out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth." And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. <clears throat> now we pointed out um, that in this, in chapter one of Mark, we see Jesus as a teacher, as an example, and as a minister. And we've talked about him as a teacher and as an example. And I wanted to talk today about Jesus as a minister or as a servant. And I wanted to point out several things about his ministry that we can learn from this passage. The first thing is that Jesus ministered with authority. He ministered with authority. The uh, commentator Alexander McLaren said this, um, not only was his uh, teaching dissimilar from the the, uh, Pharisees, but also its authority was strange. The scribes spoke with authority enough of a sort, lording it over the despised common people, and exacting punctilious obedience and much obsequiousness. <laughs> look that one up. We do this in our Bible class. I have the kids get their phones out and say, okay, look the word up now. I, I tell them about this old invention called a dictionary. It's an amazing thing. But authority over the spirit, the scribes had none. They pretended to no power but as expositors of a law. And they fortified themselves by citations of what this, that, or the other rabbi had said, which was all their learning. Christ quoted no one. He did not even say, Moses has said. He did not even preface his commands with, thus saith the Lord. He spoke of his own authority. Verily I say unto you. 
Others drew more or less pure waters from cisterns. He is himself a well of water from which all may draw. To us, as to these rude villagers in the synagogue of the little fishing town, Christ's teaching is unique in this respect. He does not argue. He affirms. He seeks no support from others' teachings. He alone is sufficient for us. He not only speaks the truth, which needs no other confirmation than his own lips, but he is the truth. Amen? We make uh, cannabis other men's teachings and distinguish their insight from their errors. We have but to accept his. The world outgrows all others. It can only grow up towards the fullness of his. Us and all the ages he teaches with authority, and the guarantee for the truth of his teaching is simply himself. Verily, verily, I say unto you. No other man has a right to say that to me, but Christ dominates the race, and the strong Son of God is the world's teacher. Isn't that good? Jesus spoke as no man ever spoke, not only in his wisdom, but in his authority, because his authority was inherent in his personhood, who he was. He didn't need to quote Moses. He didn't need to quote uh, the prophets. He didn't need to quote anybody, because when he spoke, he spoke as the one who was the fountain of truth himself, being the truth, being all good, all pure, all holy. Everything he said was true. Everything he said was right. And he didn't need to argue. He simply stated the truth as it was. When I got saved, um, I got saved from reading the Gospels. Um, someone wisely handed me a Bible and said, take, read. Well, they didn't really say that, but they, they encouraged me to read the Scripture. And they knew that me being bullheaded, just ask my wife, um, the least way to persuade me would have been to argue with me. Because I can argue. That's not the right way. What they did is they handed me a Bible and said, read it. Read the Gospels. Read John. Find out who Jesus is. So I did. And I can remember to this day, and I have a terrible memory, but this I remember. I would remember sitting in my room at night, reading the Gospels, and just being amazed, puzzled, troubled by Jesus. Because he's not at all what I expected. Because I grew up in a, in a churchy kind of environment that was big on rituals and, and you know, vestments and smoke and incense and all this stuff. So I thought Jesus wanted to be walking around with, you know, a thing on his head and incense and doing all this stuff. No, that was the scribes and Pharisees. His opposition. So here Jesus was, the, in some ways, the opponent of religion, if you will. Um, and it was, it was uh, shocking to me to, to read the things that Jesus said. And one of the things that came through the teaching of Jesus was this very note of authority. He spoke with certitude. He knew what was true and he said what was true, even though what he said was to some offensive and even though speaking with that authority to some was offensive, one of the things that I admired so much about Jesus and still do is Jesus' courage. Because, you know, when you read the Gospels with attention, you see how often he will say something and then immediately it says, and the Pharisees wanted to kill him. 
Jesus says something. And the scribes and elders plotted to kill him. So he knows the people he's talking Some of the people he's talking to literally hate him. They want to destroy him. They want to trap him. That's why they'll ask him these questions. Is it, is it lawful to, to you know, pay the tax to Caesar? They're trying to trap Jesus because they want to kill Jesus. You ever feel hostility in the workplace? Okay, this is, you know, this is, this is a harassment, on-the-job on the harassment right here. They literally hated him, yet, because of his courage, he continued to speak truthfully, and he spoke with authority. The, we'll talk more later about Jesus' ministry uh, in delivering from demons. That's not going to be our focus today. We'll get to that because it's all throughout the book of Mark. But the, the authority he exercised there in the synagogue over the demon-possessed man was, was an example, was really a, a uh, demonstration of the authority that was inherent in him and the authority that he had in his teaching and his preaching. They, the people were amazed at both. They were amazed at his power over evil spirits, but they were equally amazed at the authority with which he spoke, and the two really go together. But the thing I want us to see today about his authority is that Jesus um, always used his authority to do good. Always used his authority to serve. And this is what made Jesus so unique. Um, Look at uh, Mark 9 for a moment. Mark chapter 9. Uh, uh, Jesus, uh, we'll start in Mark 9.30. It says, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying. And they were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? That was a trick question. But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. (laughs) So here's Jesus, the one who really has all authority, Saying, I'm, he's, he's instructing them, attempting to get them to understand what's coming. And what's coming is not Jesus ascending to an earthly throne. That's not what's coming. That's what they wanted, but that's not what's coming. What was coming was just the opposite. That he was going to be rejected and that he was going to be killed. This is a message they did not want to hear. And that's why they did not understand it. They did not want to hear it. They were still uh, under the, the illusion that as Messiah, he was going to establish his, his earthly reign right there and then. So they were talking about, well, when Jesus sets up the throne, who gets to sit next to him? Who gets to be on the right? Who's going to be on the left? What's my position going to be in the kingdom? What am I going to get out of this? Of course, this, the spirit of that is in, in, inherently just the opposite of what Jesus was trying to teach them, right? Because he's saying, 
He's saying, I'm come, I'm, I have come to give my life, to lay it down, to sacrifice all. And they're talking about what they can get. So they kept silent. That was a smart thing to do. <laughs> because they argued who would be the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he should be last of all and servant of all. Now, notice this. Jesus didn't say it's wrong to desire to be first. He didn't say that. But he says, okay, you're ambitious, then I'll tell you what what the goal should be. If you want to be first, here's what you need to do. And of course, he inverts the worldly order, right? Look at uh, Matthew... um, Matthew 18, no, Matthew 20, where Jesus, we have more information about this conversation. He says in, in Matthew 20, verse 25, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus had all authority, and Jesus could have established his kingdom at that moment. Jesus could have used his authority and his power for self-advancement, for self-pleasure. But instead, Jesus used his power and authority for what? For the benefit of others. To deliver those who are demonized. To heal the sick. To feed the hungry. He, he exercised his authority simply to do good. Uh, Paul um, caught the spirit of Jesus' teaching here. Go to 2 Corinthians. I love this, love this text. In 2 Corinthians, you know the church in Corinth was kind of messed up, right? All kinds of problems, doctrinal problems, moral problems, divisions. They were They were struggling. And in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul is, you know, he's reproving them, let's say. And he says, um, well, let's see, where do we want to start? Let's start in 1220, 1219, he says, Again, do you think that we uh, excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ. We do all things, beloved, for your edification. In other words, the things that I'm saying and doing are for your benefit. They're not because I'm defending myself is what he's basically saying, even though they were criticizing him and questioning his apostolic authority. Verse 20, For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Sounds like your typical church. 
Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. So it's a hard word. It's really a warning. Um, he says in verse two, thirteen two, I told you before, and therefore... Uh, and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. So he's given a hard word, and he's even given a warning. If, if you don't go kind of straighten, straighten things up, guys, when I come, it's not going to be fun. But notice what he says here. At the end of this this section, in verse 10, he says, Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me. But notice he says, for edification and not for destruction. Paul understood the authority that he had as an apostle. And that authority also included power, I mean literal power. And yet he understood that that authority and power was to be used only for the good of other people, only for the good of building up the church. And so, like Jesus, he used his authority to minister. That's what it was for. It was not in in any way to be used for his own advantage. This is a lesson that we all need to learn, right? We have authority in different spheres. We uh, Parents have authority in their home, and it's God-given, and it's real. But it's to be used only for the benefit and nurture of their children. Amen? Yeah. Not to abuse, not to humiliate, not to control and dominate because you're annoyed or bothered but rather you are to use authority simply to build up and nurture. Husbands have authority in the home, amen? But that authority is to be used only for the nurture of the wife and the children. It is not to be used for self-interest in any way and under any circumstances. Amen? Amen. Authority is God-given, but it is also God-accountable. That is to say, the authority that God gives us in various positions, whether the authority of a pastor, a husband, a parent, a civil magistrate, an employer at work, maybe you're, you supervise people and you're a boss, you have authority in that sphere. All of that authority is granted by God, but all of that authority we will give an accounting to God for. And whether we use it for our own interest or for the benefit of others. Jesus is our model here. And he shows us how we are to use our authority. We are to use it in a life of service for others. Second mark of Jesus' ministry after authority is integrity. Integrity. Go back to Mark 1. Jesus had a really busy day. Because from verse 21 through... Um, 34, it's really one day. Busy day. He was teaching, he was healing, he was casting out demons. Uh, He had a very, very busy day. 
Um, and we see here in verse 29 that after Jesus ministered in the synagogue, that he went into a private home, and in that home, someone was ill, and then Jesus heals her also. And so we see Jesus was a servant in both his public and his private sphere. And this, this shows us that there was a consistency, or shall we say, an integrity in Jesus' ministry. Because there are some men that are very gifted in public, but they're not so gifted in private, if you know what I mean. Why do we hear repeatedly of the, the, um, the church leaders who fall? We, hear, we read these accounts all the time. I, I read... A few months ago, I read of five different pastors, all who were pastoring large, large, successful, popular churches. All five of them fell into adultery. Then as the story unfolds, what you learn is, well, you know, our marriage really wasn't good for years. Well, you know, he was hitting the kids. Well, you know, he was doing this and he was doing that. But he could shine in public. This is the same kind of rhetoric we heard when our former president committed adultery. Not only did he commit adultery while with, with the 20-year-old intern, he commits adultery in the Oval Office. Okay, In the Oval Office. And what, what did his defenders say? Well, there, we, we need to divorce his public gifts from his private life. What he does in private is irrelevant. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says what we do in private is what qualifies us to function in public. It's just the opposite. Look at, uh, look at uh, 1 Timothy for a moment. 1 Timothy 3. Where Paul gives us qualifications for church leadership. He says, this is a faithful saying. 1 Timothy 3.1. If a man desires a position of an overseer or a bishop, he desires a good work. In other words, the desire is okay. Okay, now here's the qualifications. He must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Good question. Well, he's got degrees, that's how. (laughs) He's persuasive, that's how. He's a great CEO, that's how. And so we put men in office who who are not meeting the qualifications here, and then we're courting disaster. And we see it over and over and over. So then he talks about the... uh, the deacons, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. And let these first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives, jeez, the wives even, they must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. And let the deacons be husbands of one wife, ruling their children well and their own houses well. So what we see here is that the biblical view is just the opposite of the world's view. The world's view is if you get the job done, it doesn't matter how you live in private. The, the biblical view is, is what you are in private is, is the, the qualification for what you're going to do in public. And so this is, this is integrity. Integrity is the consistency between the public and the private life. 
And so we see this with Jesus where he, he not only ministered in public, but when he was in private, he also ministered. There was a consistent consistency in his, his ministry. And so um, we need to understand that what we do in private is, is profoundly important and connected to what we do in public. And the striking thing about these qualifications here in Timothy is how little they have to do with giftedness and education. Now, I don't, I don't advocate for an ignorant ministry. Okay. Nonetheless, gifts alone are not enough. Education alone are not enough. Gifts and education are not enough. What God is looking for is integrity and consistency in the believer's life because those are the hallmarks of maturity. And I will say this, this this relates to authority because I believe that as believers and as the church, we have authority in Christ. But see, the problem is we want to be like John and we want to call fire down on people's heads. In other words, we don't know how to use our authority. And so God withholds the power from us because we're not mature enough to handle it. And we see this over and over when there's a genuine move of God and there's a revival. And we see how, how quickly revivals, which begin pure, go astray. Because many of those in leadership are not really prepared to handle the authority, the spiritual authority, and the spiritual power inherent in what God is doing. And then they begin to turn it and use it for selfish purposes. We see this over and over in history. So Jesus ministered with authority, but he ministered with integrity, and those two things go hand in hand. Thirdly, Jesus ministered, the third mark of his ministry was its spirituality, its spirituality. Go back to Mark chapter 1. Okay, so Jesus has a really, really busy, and I would guess very exhausting day at work, okay? He's teaching, he's preaching, he's casting out demons, he's, he's healing, he's having all this interaction with people all day long. He goes home. Gee, I got to heal somebody else. More work, okay? And all of this was taxing on Jesus. I mean, the thing we have to understand is that yet being God, he was a man. And we know that he was wearied. We know that he would be hungry. He would be thirsty. He would be tired. Remember the scene out on the lake where there's a storm and and the, the disciples freak out, right? Jesus, you don't care about us. What was Jesus doing? Sleeping. He was worn out. He was tired. So here, long day, he's ministering into the evening because people would not leave him alone. And it says in verse 35, No, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, which tells us he probably did not get a lot of sleep. He went out and he departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now, that's a mark of the integrity of his ministry, too, that he had a private prayer life. But the point I'm making here is that Jesus 
balanced the public service with his private devotions. Private devotion with God, communion with God, public ministry. And those two always go hand in hand. The, the obvious biblical example, the well-known one here, is, of course, the, the Martha and Mary story, Mary story, right? You know, Martha freaking out. Tell her to help. Well, that tells you right there that she wasn't serving with the right attitude. She was serving, but had a bad attitude. We get a lot of that in the church, don't we? People do stuff, but they're doing it with a bad attitude. They're either grumbling about it, or they do it, and while they're doing it, they're like, look at me, look what I'm doing. Wrong attitude. So, Jesus went and spent time with the Father. And the question I ask myself is, did Jesus need to pray? Or did he want to pray? And I think the answer is both. I think he needed to pray. As a man, he would be wearied, he would be tired. And we know from Luke that when Jesus healed, virtue, I love the King James, virtue, or it could be translated power, would go out of him. So think of all the healing he did just on that one day. All the, all the spiritual power that was basically sucked out of Jesus. And how he must have been fatigued and he had to be renewed. So where did he go? He went to the Father. He got to a quiet place. And he spent time there communing with the Father because he needed it. But I believe he also wanted it. He loved his Father and he wanted to spend time fellowshipping and communing with his Father. The obvious lesson for us is that if, if Jesus needed to pray in private, how much more do we? Right? Uh, there's a great quote by... Uh, J.C. Ryle, it's actually quite a long quote, but I want to read a little bit to you. It talks, about, it talks here about Jesus' prayer. He says, we find the same thing, meaning Jesus going to a solitary place to pray, often recorded of our Lord in the gospel history. When he was baptized, we are told that he was praying. When he was transfigured, we are told that as he prayed, the fashion of his face was altered. Before he chose the twelve apostles, we are told that he continued all night in prayer to God. When all men spoke well of him and would fain have made him king, we are told that he went up into a mountain apart to pray. When tempted in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, sit here a while while I pray. In short, our Lord prayed always and did not faint. Sinless as he was, he set us an example of diligent communion with his father. His Godhead, listen to this, his Godhead did not render him independent of the use of all means as a man. His very perfection was a perfection kept up through the exercise of prayer. We ought to see in all this the immense importance of private devotion. If he who is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, thus prayed continually, how much more ought we who are accomplished with infirmity? If he found it needful to offer up supplications with strong crying and tears, how much more needful is it for us who in many things offend daily? 
Amen? What show? Do you mind if I read just a little bit more? I mean, he preaches a lot better than I do, so. So he says, what shall we say to those who never pray at all in the face of such a passage as this? There are many such, it may be feared, in the list of baptized people, many who rise up in the morning without prayer and without prayer lay down at night, many who never speak one word to God. What shall we say to those who pray yet give but little time to their prayers? We are obliged to say that they show at present very little of the mind of Christ. Asking little, they must expect to have little. Seeking little, they cannot be surprised that they possess little. It will always be found that when prayers are few, grace, strength, peace, and hope are small. Isn't that good? One more. Now you're really going to be convicted. We shall do well to watch our habits of prayer with a holy watchfulness. Here is the pulse of our Christianity. Here is the true test of our state before God. Here, true religion begins in the soul. Here, it decays and goes backward when a man backslides from God. Let us walk in the steps of our blessed master in this respect, as well as in every other. Like him, let us be diligent in our private devotion. Let us know what it is to depart into solitary places and pray. Amen. So Jesus, uh, being a man, needed to pray. And obviously, how much more do we? But Jesus also, knowing the Father, wanted to pray. And he loved to be alone. Which really makes his life of service all the more impressive. Because if he could have his way, he would have spent much more time, I believe, in private, communing with the Father. But instead, he laid his life down for the benefit of others in healing the sick and delivering the demonized and feeding the hungry. But we see, again, the beautiful balance in his life between action and devotion. And thus, he sets an example for us. Last thing I want to point out about Jesus' ministry is its intentionality. Intentionality. What do I mean? Well, notice here at the end of our passage in Mark that we read, they, they, Jesus goes to get time alone. They find him. Unfortunate for him. Right? They find him. Um, Peter's like, everybody's looking for you. You know, people want to be healed. Man, what are you doing up here praying? And so what does Jesus say in verse 38? Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And what this shows us is that Jesus um, was not subject to the tyranny of the urgent. Right? The tyranny of the urgent. There was no time in Jesus' ministry where there wasn't something that needed to be done. The claims of the sick, the diseased, the demonized, the hungry, the, the masses, the, their claims were ever pressing upon him. And when we read through Mark, Mark highlights this and he talks about how he was constantly surrounded by people. So much so that it says in a couple of places, um, 
Well, like in chapter 3, verse 20, it says, it says, Then the multitude came together so that they could not so much as eat bread. There was so much commotion and so much activity, and people were pressing into Jesus so much that they didn't even have time to eat. And uh, Mark repeats this later on. Uh, his, his own family thought Jesus was a little bit off because he... Um, was laying his life out constantly in this way for people. But Jesus was not controlled by the masses. He was not governed by their needs. He was not subject to the tyranny of the urgent because he was intentional in what he was doing. And we see this when he he says, Lord, everybody's looking for you. In other words, there are sick people here. There are demonized people here. There's people that need you, Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm going to the next town because I'm called to do this. In other words, he did not let the needs around him get him off of his divinely ordained plan and purpose. In other words, Jesus had focus in what he was doing. He was focused in what he was doing. He was not random. He was not just bouncing around. He was not just pressured to do one thing and pressured to do the other thing. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he did it according to his own plan. So we see here a balance of word and deed in his life, of action a balance of action, a balance of devotion, a, back, a balance of dealing with the immediate, but a, a balance of drawing back and staying focused on what he is called to do. It's a beautiful picture because many of us are running around like the proverbial chicken without a head. Right? From one thing to the next because there are needs and everything's important and everything's urgent. And what happens is our lives lose focus and we, we do not have priorities anymore. When Jesus went off to pray, he, he did that because that was important. And he recognized it as a priority, and he didn't let the urgent keep him from doing what he knew was important. Now, if I asked you, are your private devotions important? You would say, yeah, you would. But the reality is that very often life steers us away from the thing we know is important. And, you know, you, you, you've got work and you've got kids and then the car breaks down and you've got this and you've got to fix that pipe and you've got to do this thing. And, you know, life. It's just life. And so we end up being dominated and controlled by our environment rather than having our, our priorities firmly focused and governing our lives by what we know is truly important. It's called majoring in the majors, or doing the first things first. And sometimes you just have to say no. You have to say no sometimes to other people, sometimes you have to say no to things, and sometimes you have to say no to yourself. You just have to say no, because this is more important. And if anything is important, your time with God is important. Nobody in this room would disagree with me. 
you all will assent. You will all be in agreement with me that your time with the Lord alone, your time in word and prayer is the most important thing in your life. You will say this, and I believe that you believe it at the moment. The question is, do we have the fortitude and the discipline to, to, to implement that when the urgent is demanding our attention? Jesus is our example here. Because he would have had every reason to say, okay, I'll stay another day or two. There's needs here. But he didn't get sidetracked. Let me reassure you of one thing. There will always be needs. There's no shortage of needs. There's always going to be bills to pay. There's always going to be the grass that has to be cut. There's always going to be laundry. There's always going to be dishes. There's always going to be all the things that take us to eat up our time. They'll always be there. And those are not the most important things. The most important thing is that we are focused on our relationship with the Lord and doing His will. Because that is what Jesus was doing here when He said, for this purpose I came. Yes, there are needs here, but for this purpose I came. I'm not going to do that, although that is good. I'm going to do this because to this I am called. And it's that kind of focus and sense of purpose that we need in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Lord, I want to thank you that you are the perfect model. And Lord, I thank you that it's a privilege and a joy that we can, as we've done this morning, meditate on you. The perfect man a perfect example. And Lord, I pray that we would, um, as those that you've called to follow, that we would truly imitate you. We would imitate your servant authority, your moral integrity, your devotion and spirituality, And finally, Lord, your sense of purpose and intentionality. I pray, Lord, that if our priorities are askew, that you would show us the way to walk. I pray that if we're compromised, Lord, that you would show us where to repent and change. I just pray that for your ongoing work in our hearts through your word and your precious Holy Spirit that you give us that is working in us to make us like you, Jesus. That you have called us to that, to be like you. Lord, we love you, and we are so grateful for all that you give us. We bless you, Jesus. pray in your name. Amen.